Welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 6, Episode 15, The Old Idaho Penitentiary, Part 3. In the 1940s and 1950s, the Idaho Pen, again, was suffering from overcrowding, and a new cell house was constructed. Cell Block Number 5 held the worst of the worst, with maximum security cells, a death row, its very own indoor gallows, and a drop house. This housing unit is rumored to be the most haunted of all the buildings on the property, even though only one official hanging took place within. It was also the last state-sanctioned execution in Idaho, taking the life of prisoner number 9509, Raymond Allen Snowden, in the most unethical way. On the evening of September 23, 1956, Cora Dean drove to the Hi-Ho Club in Garden City, where she intended to have a few drinks and play the slot machines. Here, she met a young man named Raymond Snowden, who she found not only attractive, but fun to be around. When the two had a few drinks, Snowden wanted to take things a bit further and pressured Cora. When his advances were denied, he threatened Cora in a frightening manner, asking her to choose between rape and death. Cora, obviously taken aback, chose neither, and that made Snowden angry, who produced a pocket knife and stabbed Cora 29 times. The body, which was found the next morning by a paper boy, was viciously and sadistically cut and mutilated. An autopsy surgeon testified the voice box had been cut out, and that this would have prevented the victim from making any intelligible outcry. There were other wounds inflicted while she was still alive. One in her neck, one in her abdomen, two in her face, and two at the back of the neck. The second neck wound severed the spinal cord and caused death. There were other wounds all over her body, and her clothing had been cut away. The nipple of her right breast was missing. There was no evidence of a sexual attack on Cora. However, some of the lacerations were around her breast and the vagina area of the deceased. Snowden took the dead woman's wallet, hailed a passing motorist, and rode back to Boise. There he went to a bowling alley and changed clothes. He dropped his knife into a sewer at a cigar shop and threw the wallet away. Then he went to his hotel and cleaned up again. He put the clothes he had worn that evening into a trash barrel just outside the hotel. Police narrowed in on Snowden almost immediately as eyewitnesses pointed out that Snowden had left with Cora that evening from the Hi-Ho Club. Police also remember Snowden from a previous encounter as to which he boasted he was going to sever the spinal cord of his then-girlfriend because she was irritating him. They found the weapon, the same one they remember him previously threatening with, still covered in blood in a sewer grate near Hannafin Cigar Shop. Another eyewitness placed Snowden there, and that was enough for an arrest to be made. During the trial, it was brought to the attention of the media that Snowden had boasted of two other murders, but they were never confirmed. A detective magazine at the time dubbed Snowden... Idaho's Jack the Ripper, in view of the viciousness of the crime. Snowden was found guilty and sentenced to death. He took up residence in death row 
with his door in view of the indoor gallows to which he would make his way on October 18, 1957. At 12.05, he was brought into the gallows room and met with the chaplain. The noose was placed around his neck, and the witnesses in the viewing room got their first look at Snowden. The door sprung just 45 seconds later. Down went Snowden, and the crowd gasped. It seems the warden and those responsible for carrying out the deed did not measure Snowden's height or weight, and as such, the counterweight was not calculated correctly. Snowden fell, but he did not break his neck instantly. Instead, in the catch room, he struggled and swung about for 15 minutes until he finally died. Some say it was an oversight, while others believe the authorities did this on purpose to make Snowden's death one of suffering. Snowden's hanging was the last of a total of 10 men to occur at the prison, and his body was buried in an unmarked grave on prison property. Some believe that Snowden haunts his cell, cell block number five, and the hanging room. But Snowden may not be the only soul still doing time at the pen. There are a total of 129 recorded deaths within the walls. As we get into the Halloween spirit, we're taking a look at some spooky sightings from across the gem states. On your sides, Karen Laird joined a group of paranormal investigators as they toured the historic Idaho State Penitentiary in tonight's Hauntings of Idaho. Behind the historic charm and colorful foliage at the Idaho State Penitentiary lies a history of death, murder, and mystery. We're here at death row. This is a prison. The people that were put here were bad people. Were you innocent of the crime that you were charged and convicted with? There were deaths here. There were suicides. There were uh, people uh, murdered. There were people that were uh, hanged here. The prison has built a reputation around town as a place where ghosts gather, attracting paranormal investigators from around the country. Okay, is there somebody coming in to the cell block with us? Maybe those entities that uh, died here um, haven't moved on. Uh, maybe they're still floating around and they're still angry. Come up and knock on the glass next to Karen. Investigator Mike Clough has explored the old pen several times over the last few years, and each time there's one cell block that never fails to show spiritual activity. Now we're in here to visit with you. I've seen full-bodied apparitions. I've heard voices. I've seen movement. I've seen shadows. And on this trip. Is there anybody here that would like to come forward and just let us know what your name is? Several questions asked by the group were followed by faint sounds down the corridor or the sound of metal clanking against a cell door, but nothing compared to what happened next. He thought he saw some movement at about waist high and asked me to walk over, so I walked over there and I, he asked me to stick my hand out and to reach inside the door. What's there inside the cell to your left? Is that the bottom of the <laughs> Sorry about that. What was that? leaving even more unanswered questions about the unexplained. Something grabbed my hand, my left hand on my ring finger and my little finger. Startled me. <laughs> I was pretty startled. Uh, and obviously, you know, when I looked down, 
you know, there was nothing there. This was investigator Mark Edwards' first trip to the old pen, but he says he's no stranger to spiritual activity. Has that ever happened to you before? I have been uh, grabbed before at other locations. Uh, I've been cut. Uh, I've got a scar here where I asked an entity once uh, if it could touch me, and it did. And I said, can you touch me harder? And it cut my arm and actually left a scar. Were you bleeding? Yeah. And while no blood was shed on this exploration... Who was in the cell where the door is standing open? Investigators left even more intrigued than when they arrived. Do you think that there are spirits or beings or entities still around the old pen? Yes, absolutely. Karen Lair, Today 6 on your side. Well, ghosts or no ghosts, it's a cool place to go hang out and just walk around. And see the history. And see the history. Now, whether there's some old inmates walking around. Due to overcrowding and the treatment of prisoners, serious riots occurred in 1952 and again in 1971. The 1973 riots proved to be the end of the old Idaho pen, as riots burned down several buildings and damaged others beyond repair. The 416 resident inmates were moved to the new Idaho State Correctional Institution, south of Boise, and the old Idaho pen was closed on December 3rd, 1973, never to see another living soul imprisoned behind its stone walls. If you are interested in the old Idaho State Pen, you can visit them daily where tours are conducted by volunteer staff. Special events around Halloween turn the prison into one ghoulish haunted attraction. More recently, the Pen has been giving out paranormal investigation tours. Special thanks to all those volunteering to keep such a historical gem alive. Thank you to the Idaho State Historical Society for their excellent resources and dedication. We will attach a bonus episode that was produced by the staff of the Idaho State Pen with funding from the Idaho State Historical Society. It focuses in on the prison's only double hanging. If you like what you hear, head over to their YouTube page to see additional videos. We will leave you now with the words and the memories of prisoners and staff from the old Idaho State Pen. Until next time, be good. The chapel was the most beautiful building in the institution. It had big, beautiful murals. I couldn't give you the measurement of the building off the top of my head. It was a fairly large building. It was the first building built in the institution. And even though it was as large as it was, there was only three murals on each side. They were so large. And they were beautiful murals of uh, our Lord Jesus crying over Jerusalem, one on the cross, Kent remember right off what the others were but they were really nice murals they had some wonderful guests in some wonderful speakers and uh, lots of the fellows were very dedicated and very serious about the chapel service of course there was others who went there just because the guests and the good-looking young ladies that came in and so on which is natural no one even downgraded them because they weren't being phony they said that's what they come for was to see the good-looking ladies and they were very honest about it we find the riot that moved them to the new site after i was released took place in the mess hall and in the chapel 
wound totally burnt both to the ground. And as I have been back to the institution since, I was just about heartsick to see that them two buildings, which were nice buildings, was completely gutted and flat, but near just the wall standing. stood down at the bottom of this walkway here on your way up in between the buildings here you stood at the bottom of this step here stretched out this doesn't show five houses but five houses back in here and you were stretched out in a line now as long as you was at the bottom of those steps you could talk to the guy behind you in front of you across from you there was two lines the minute you started up them steps when they blew that whistle and child was being served you didn't say anymore and from that time until you walked out of that cell hall, you didn't say anything at all. It was a silent system. You grabbed your utensils and your tray and your cup, and you went up the line. And if you didn't want it or you didn't want very much, you said so. Because if you took it, you ate it. And if you didn't eat it, after you took it, you went to Five House. It was just automatic. Don't eat your food, go to Five House. There was an officer standing at the door, which was usually the captain of the yard. And up on the left-hand side, of the dining hall, facing the back of the kitchen, was a little room. And in that little room was an officer with a shotgun and a box of shells, and he was there for every meal. And if he caused any problems in there, he just, the captain stood at the back, at the front door, all he had to do was just step out, and that was the end of it right there. They shoot you. had many attempts. Uh, one that I really delighted in was one that Dillard uh, was thrown in the hole. And Dillard was in there for about three years. Not, not all at once, but totally three years. At this particular time, he was in there for a little over 18 months and was digging his way out with a spoon and a homemade digger. And he had it measured off and was just what he thought was outside the wall and he had a little cave in as the drag truck which went around once a week over the deadline kind of sunk right there where his tunnel was and uh, was brought to Mr. Carey's attention. So Mr. Carey very politely didn't get excited, didn't let Dillard know anything. He just went back out front, got him a chair, come back over and sat down and listened to old Dillard dig. And when Dillard come up, he was on the inside of the wall yet. He missed it by about six feet. Mr. Carey was sitting there with a the shotgun across his lap, asking, asked Dillard, well, how's things going? And I won't repeat what Dillard said, but he was taken back down, put in a different cell, and they just poured concrete in the hole that he had dug. Peaceably, they just put two handcuffs on you with an uh, eight-foot chain and drug you. They didn't ask you to walk, they drug you. And it didn't make any difference whether they grabbed them on the asphalt or on the sidewalks or down the steps or up the steps. They drug you until they got you where they were going to take you. And if you couldn't get up, if you were Siberia, they took all your clothes away and threw you in a room. It was five hours, and upstairs and locked you up. Well, the lighting was very poor. We had probably 60-watt bulbs out in the hallway and none in the cell. The only light you got in the cell was through a ventilator in the roof. The first time I was over there, they had metal bunks attached to the walls. They were about 18 inches wide by 6 feet long. And they give you two blankets and a bucket for drinking water. The walls, in the summertime, the walls would sweat. In the wintertime, there's ice on them. You had enough trouble just staying warm in the wintertime. You couldn't make no way you could stay cool in the summertime. 
we flooded the cells and everything else. The only thing to give you to pass the time would be the Bible. And we took the Bible and made chessboards in it, took toilet paper, used our bread and mixed up dough and made chess sets, dominoes, cards. Every week when they come over to showers, they'd give us one shower a week, they'd take everything away from us, and we'd have to start all over and build it back. Well, when I come out of there, I'll tell you, I, I had a different attitude and a different outlook in life. I, I really got where I didn't care. You know? I just soon killed the coppers looked at. Me. You know, it just, it just done something to me. You know, my mind, uh, I was very bitter. And uh, from that day on, I, uh, I don't know, I just didn't seem to, uh, well, I just didn't seem to be the same. You know, I had a different home. I just thought everything was shitty. And uh, that's the way you gotta be. You know, if that's the way you gotta be, why, why not be that way? So I do things I didn't really care, you know. It uh, changes the person. There's some of the, some people come out of there that uh, were worse, worse off than me. I mean, they, uh, they really, if I can think it, they'd come out of there, either they went in there and they were pretty model, they're model prisoners, you know. When they get a little trouble, they get in there and they come out and more they turn wild and every other thing. It just does it to you. That's what it does. That's the results when you're going the Siberia as a whole. And then you then you turn bitter on the uh, personnel, on the guards, you know. I mean, it just turns you against everything in the whole world. And you just don't give it to her anymore. That's how it affected me anyway. I, of course, I've been through so some, some many things, you know, that uh, to me anymore, I don't, I don't care. But you can imagine the effect it would have on, on a young guy today, especially here, just so many of these youngsters. I've seen a lot of people, I don't know, I, I thought it was kind of funny at the time, but a lot of people couldn't make it. Seen people commit suicide, seen them bug out, some of them were sent for. Little Tommy, he went to the back to our kingdom, I guess, locked up. Randy Woods, he just hung himself off the ledge of the door. Some of them cut their arm trying to get to the hospital and squirt blood all over. It's a place for survivors, and that's all. He didn't have the will to survive. They were in bad trouble. Like everything else, you make a game out of it. You try to win. Usually in the summertime, we try to get in the hole. In the wintertime, we tried to get to Siberia. Siberia was small cells, the hole was a big one. In the summertime, you'd, you'd rather be over in the hole where there's more circulation of air and you can put on an exercise routine. It was better in the summertime. And in the wintertime, you freeze to death so hard. It's hard to make it. It was good. If you had uh, medical problems, uh, I had a tooth one time that uh, they had the outside uh, dentist come in that was getting ready to take their exams and they'd fix your teeth. And uh, they came in one day and fixed my tooth. The next day happened to be the day that the regular dentist was going to be there on Thursday. And I went up to him and it was aching where they'd filled it. And uh, at that time they sat you in the chair, he asked you which one and you pointed it out. He got a syringe, put it full of Novocaine, shot the tooth, sent you around to the end of the line. And when your turn came up the line again, you sat back down in the chair and they pulled a tooth. They didn't make, uh, uh, they, had, uh, they had a couple of boys that used to be dentists out on the street. And their hustle was that they'd make you a set of false teeth. I had
had one fellow work for me in the kitchen, and even down in the where they took their showers. And there was four inmates attacked him. And they were going to go for a sex deal with the guy, and he he, he knocked them all out. He did flat. And, uh, and a couple of guards came down there, and he flattened them too. And so they were going to take him to Five House and lock him up. And I said no. I said if you lock up this inmate, then you lock me up too, because he's not wrong. Whatever he did down there was right. And they, and they, they didn't lock him up either. He was never uh, loose in the yard. I don't remember the exact total now, but there was probably seven suicides uh, while I was there. And there may have been more, but seven that I can recall. It. And most of them were, they was done by hanging themselves. A few slipped their wrists and didn't make it. Usually, uh, slicing your wrists, someone discovers you before you bleed completely out. There's lots of the attempts of suicide, and uh, these were the wrist cutters. But the ones that hung themselves, uh, that was it. Uh, another fellow who was surprised to everyone that he hung himself was a muscle freak. Uh, he was a gorilla. Uh, when he was led and he was kept in in uh, two house, it wasn't solitary confinement or anything like that. It was just different cell. Uh, it was kind of a solitary for him. He was not a troublemaker. They just didn't want any trouble. Because he wasn't, he wasn't scared of man or beast. He, uh, somebody say something wrong to him, he'd knock their head clean off, literally. He was such a muscular guy, he could do uh, Chinese push-ups with one arm. He didn't even have to use two, he just put his back up against the wall and just do as many push-ups you'd ask him to do. 500 didn't mean nothing to him. But uh, one morning, uh, totally surprised everyone. He got tired of doing his push-ups and his calisthenics or something. And he hung himself, and he hung himself by suffocating. His neck was so stout you couldn't have broke it with a club. He was hanging from the top of his cell block. But uh, there was many other ways. Just as I become trustee, we had a fellow who had some acid spilt in his eyes. So he used this and pretended to be blind. And he went around with the cane. And uh, one day I was sitting in the back bench at the theater, and he just come to the theater to be with his friends. So everybody thought, because he, he didn't really pay any attention to the film, but I noticed he come running in there and didn't use his cane and sat down. Didn't look around for the bench or nothing. He just knew it was there and sat down on it. And I thought, that guy's no more blind than nothing. And sure enough, uh, even after I was released and paroled, I read in the paper where this fellow was caught staring at the nurses and sent back to the penitentiary, having perfect 20-20 vision when beautiful legs walked by and got caught at it. So he picked him out for about eight months of being blind, and he was not blind. He could see very well. I remember... Uh... First time I had an inmate cut my hair, Don Broncho. It was in three house on the right, on the first floor, on the south tier, all the way back, corner cell, last cell down. Went down there and told Don, I said, I understand you cut hair. He says, yeah. He said, I cut hair. 
I said, would you mind cutting my hair? He said, oh, climb up in the chair. I'll cut your hair. He cut my hair, and after he got done, uh, he says, let me go and uh, clean you up a little bit. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? I said, you sure do, Don. He said, well, don't think nothing of it right now. That was it. <laughs> I did see one a knife and knife defender fight. We have quite the weapons in there. I won't take time to describe some of them now, but they have what they call a D-knifer, and the other fellow had a knife, and I noticed in knife fights after it was all over, the place that they try to get their other fellow is not a shoulders or a heart shot or something like that. It's either the stomach or the eyes. If you can slice the other guy's eyes, he can't see you, and you've got him. Or if you slice his guts open and they fall out, you, you've got him. And a knife fight isn't too scary until it's over. Then I get butterflies, and we've seen one of these. And the fellow with the D-knife uh, yanked the knife away from the other fellow so quick that it was a short-lived knife fight, but they were out to uh, do one another bodily harm very seriously. And the fellow was going to literally cut the other guy's stomach wide open with his D-knifer and he ducked, whirled, and took off with the deadline just as fast as he could run with the other guy right behind him. And he ran out on the deadline with his hands up. The other fellow did not step out on the deadline, which was a good thing because by the time he got there, the guards were ready and they would have been somewhat seriously wounded at least. But that was uh, quite scary afterward. Uh, kind of amusing while it took place, but very scary afterward. There was lots of knife fightings and knifings, which I did not get in on or know about. Uh, most uh, of the fights I knew was gentleman fights, fist to fist, and it was uh, just over little things normally. Uh, sometimes, like I mentioned earlier, maybe it was money matters, lending and borrowing. It's talked about honor among thieves. There's no convict code That's a big farce. Convict code is, is probably may be held by 1% of total population. What's the convict code? The convict code is like Tony was talking about. Do your own number. Exactly. You do your own number, you do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. I mean, number one, you're in there to do your number. And when you mess with somebody else or get in somebody else's faces, then you're going to have problems. Then you're looking for trouble. Uh, but if you just do your own time, you do your job, and, and, and you maintain your own personality and your own status, you're not going to have problems. You were allowed a Bible, so you could read that much. In the morning, they'd come in, wake you up, get you up, take all your stuff away from you, and uh, bring down the cart, and they'd go ahead and feed you. And then the rest of the day was just sitting there either talking to the guys in the next cell or the cell below you or hollering at one another or you just spend it sitting there thinking about why you was there, reading the Bible or doing whatever, because there just wasn't nothing to do. Uh, telling stories about things out on the streets or asking somebody if they knew so-and-so from some someplace, and eventually you'd find somebody who knew who he was talking about, and then you'd carry on a conversation for about 29 of those 30 days just to get along. And then they'd feed you dinner, and once a week they'd come in and let you take a shower. And all the showers were against the wall. You went out there, uh, didn't make any difference. You went out there in front of everybody, whatever, and you took your shower. And uh, you had a towel, and you went ahead and changed your clothes. Uh, you 
changed your towel, and uh, that was it. You went back in, and that was your excitement for the week. It was the only form of communication you had was with the other inmates by talking to the dude between the cells. Right. No mail. No mail, no nothing. If he was lucky, and you happened to know the officer, and made changes, you might get him to move you to the second tier. And from the second tier, you could see out, and then you could see the guys walking in front of Five House. In front of Five House, for maximum security at that time, there used to be about five furrows for guys that walked side by side. They walked along there so many times and so often that there was little trenches, and you could sit out there and watch the guys. And then, of course, we'd spend part of our day uh, tearing pieces out of our blankets, strings out of our blankets, and finding anything like a pencil if we could find one, or, or a loose bolt or a nut or anything we could find. And then we'd have these windows open that would go outside, and we'd go ahead and throw strings out there and hope that they'd go down the ground, and somebody would tie on maybe a cigarette, a striker, and a match, and you could haul it back in, and everybody on that tier would smoke You could get somebody to put it on there for you. Were you very successful with that? Well, yeah. Quite successful. But we had a lot of time to work at it. What types of things did you personally get back? Oh, pencils that we could write, uh, matches, uh, cigarettes, like I said, you know, uh, rolling papers, tobacco. Sometimes it was smuggled into the food, sometimes they didn't catch it, sometimes in a tray or something. Uh, we had our ways of getting some things, but you know, like you do, you come, I imagine, what you would consider a little ingenious. I went down that night and I said, uh, Ray, do you think you committed too terrible a crime for God to forgive? And for the first time I looked in the eye, he said, yes. I read him a scripture that said, God will forgive anything. I said, do you think about that tonight? And I went out prayed with him the next morning. And he was sentenced to die 30 days later. He was the most peaceful man in the execution chamber. Some of the guards have been drinking to get the courage up. The warden was naturally white-faced because he had to give the order. And uh, they made a kind of a cradle strapping into it because we were hanging there. And if you fainted, you would choke to death. It would be a horrible thing. Or excuse by hanging is actually the most merciful because the minute that uh, cord is broken in the back of your neck, but there's no feeling whatsoever. All intents and purposes, your heart may be for 10 or 15 minutes, but you're dead. And uh, I know that Ray was on his knees praying when he came in. He looked up and said, what's that for, child? I don't know. Just kind of smiled and said, I'm not going to faint. He said, I made my peace with God. I'm not going to faint. He did did he feel he deserved his fate? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he felt he deserved to die. At about 10 minutes to 12, we strapped him down on, on this board and uh, where he'd, and we packed him in from his cell and on the gallows. And uh, then that's when uh, the warden asked him his his last wish, but he wanted to say anything, and and uh, he said, uh, yes, he said, I do, but I don't know how to say it. And then we waited a few minutes, and and, uh, and then nodded the warden, or to the hangman, and he put the rope on him and, and sprung the trap, and that was it.
women's ward, which is just outside of the old prison. It was made for the women not to get out of, but it was uh, quite common that the men would get in. And uh, one fellow, uh, I can't remember his name right at the, this time, he was very handy at getting in there. He was a trustee, and he would go in and help the ladies out once in a while. But even that got kind of caught on, too, because they had a tree in the corner of the uh, ladies' prison, and that's the way he, he wasn't nothing to go up the outside wall and then just jump over into the tree and back and down into the ward, into the women's ward. But uh, the tree is no longer in there. And... Uh, that women's work was moved, in fact, and it's at Orfino, Idaho now, I guess.